powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Welcome, my friends, to the show that once again is on the air better than before. I'm Tony Richards. We're going to have a pretty good show for you today. I'm going to be talking about how to be change ready uh, when you're a leader or manager. And we've been hit with a completely different paradigm here with the coronavirus situation all over the world, especially here in the United States, the last 30 days or so. So you need to ask yourself how well and how prepared are you? For change. And I'm going to talk about three big components on being change ready. Also, my special guests this week are Jeremy Morris and Mark Gingrich, a couple of partners in the Williams Keepers public accounting consultants business. And they are going to be here with me discussing the payroll protection plan uh, loans for businesses. Unfortunately, the funding for that program ran out uh, last Friday. But we're hoping and praying there's going to be another round of funding. So we're going to talk about what to do if you haven't gotten in on that yet, what to do if there's another round. If you did get accepted, how you need to treat that on your financial statements, how you can maximize the forgiveness of the loan, and a bunch of other great topics. They're standing by. I'll get to Mark and Jeremy in just a minute. First, I want to tell you that Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru, from here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Friends, in these unprecedented times, your University Subaru family hopes that you and yours are secure and safe. We're open and working within the parameters of the stay-at-home order. Service and parts are open as usual, and the sales department is open via email and internet. We can discuss features, options, and pricing, and even come to agreements over the phone or internet. Visit our website, click internet pricing, or give us a call. And right now, get 0% APR financing for 63 months on most 2020 new Subaru vehicles. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards, and today I have Mark Gingrich and Jeremy Morris. Uh, They are CPAs with the firm of Williams Keepers Accounting Consultants in Columbia, Missouri, and also in Jefferson City, Missouri. We're going to be talking about the uh, PPP loans, 
uh, today, and they're going to give us some details on some of that. Let me introduce you to both these guys. Mark Gingrich leverages his training and tax research to offer planning and consulting solutions related to estate planning, trust and estate matters, business structuring, succession planning. He joined the Williams Keepers Ownership Group in 2014. He's a native of Columbia. He joined Williams Keepers in 2009 after completing a law degree with high honors at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. He's a graduate of the University of Missouri where he earned undergraduate degrees in accounting and business administration with an emphasis in economics and a master's degree in accounting. Mark is a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Missouri Society of Certified Public Accountants. He's also a member of the National State and Local Bar Associations and the Order of the Cough. Mark uh, serves as a current board member or board president for the Mid-Missouri Estate Planning Council as the board treasurer of the Missouri Innovation Center and as a volunteer with Junior Achievement of Central Missouri, the Boone County Bar Association's Young Lawyers Committee and the Boy Scouts of America. Jeremy Morris began his career in public accounting at Williams Keepers in 2005 and joined the member group in 2016. He provides tax and consulting services for the firm's individual and business clients and makes presentations to local groups on various tax topics. He works with insurance companies, closely held businesses, construction companies, and estates and trusts. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree in accounting from the University of Missouri in 2002 and earned a Master of Science degree in Business Administration from Penn State University in 2005. He's currently chair-elect for the Jefferson City YMCA Board of Directors. He's a past treasurer of the Jefferson City uh, Concert Association. He's a member of the Advisory Committee for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Jefferson City, the Mizzou Alumni Association Leadership Board for Cole County, and Finance Committees for the Jefferson City YMCA in St. Joseph's Cathedral Parish. He's a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Missouri Society of Certified Public Accountants. And in 2014, he was recognized by Jefferson City Magazine as one of six ones to watch for his professional achievements and community service. I mean, this whole coronavirus thing aside, when do you guys ever see your families? My goodness, you got a lot going on. They're seeing more of us now than what they probably want to. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. Listen, I really appreciate you guys doing this today. Our pleasure. We're happy to be here. You bet. Now, before we get started into talking about these payroll protection plan loans, um, how has the coronavirus affected you guys? Well, we've, you know, it's definitely changed the way we've operated as a firm. Um, you know, a lot of the, we've got the majority of our staff working from, working from home, from remote locations. You know, we've closed our doors to clients uh, for probably uh, th at least three weeks now, maybe longer. And so everything that we're doing is, is for the most part remote, which we do have the ability to do. Um, but it, it does provide some challenges when you're not there face to face, either meeting with clients or, or you know, meeting with associates and, and uh, fellow staff members. Yeah, for sure. And I guess the other part, Jeremy, is uh, some of these recordings and Zoom calls. We get some people bombing in from from behind us from time to time. <laughs> yeah, fair. Has it affected your um, relations or families or anybody you know at all? Thankfully, no. In my case as far as anyone who's contracted it that I've personally known. Yeah. Same for me. Same for me. Fingers crossed. 
So um, the United States government came out with this program for these payroll protection loans. And uh, I guess at the end of the week last week, the money ran out like 350 billion, something like that. So what do people do if they didn't apply and now the money's run out? Do they get a second chance or what? Well, the answer on that is maybe. Um, I don't know if you've seen over the weekend, uh, they they have been in talks, I know, to, to do additional funding associated with it. So, you know, it, it, one strategy would be to go ahead and continue to get everything together, you know, to, to apply for the loan under the assumption that more monies will be made available. I think the amounts that they're talking about are about 310 billion on top of the, as you rightly said, 300 and almost $350 billion that they've run through in about two weeks. Um, so the, you know, more funding may be available. Having said that though, and, and Mark can, you know, shed some light on some of these as well, that, um, you know, there are additional programs out there, even if you didn't get, you know, it, let's say you didn't get a crack at the PPP funding and it's going to be some period of time, maybe before new funding, or maybe they can't actually come to an agreement on additional funding. There are other options available, whether it's just to, to increase cash flow or maybe provide other types of tax benefits or tax credits associated with, you know, taking care of your employees. Yeah, Tony, I, Jeremy put together a really nice white paper that's available for free on our website um, and, and kind of walks through what some of the options are. There, there were some, the, the PPP program came about through the CARES Act and the CARES Act followed the Family First Act the week before. So we had two major pieces of federal legislation back to back on consecutive weeks in the middle of, middle of March. And the, the CARES Act included a number of, um, of provisions that piled on to some provisions in the, in the Families First Act and some of these provisions can be used in concert with the PPP forgiveness program. In other words, if you participate in PPP with loan forgiveness, um, then, then, you, um, then you can still take the other benefits. Um, and, but some of them are mutually exclusive. In other words, if you take the PPP uh, forgiveness uh, benefit, then you are barred from accessing certain other tax credits. And so Jeremy put together a real nice white paper that kind of walks through in a couple of different business settings how, how a business owner might think through trying to optimize those various incentives. But I, I, think, I think Jeremy hit the nail right on the head that we're going to be hoping for. The promise out of the administration has been if this if they didn't get enough money into the program round one they'll they'll do it they'll add to it in a round two funding um and so yeah i never like to have people make decisions banking on congress acting or not acting um but i i, I do think that that's something to watch here in the next two or three days and um if if it's going to happen, I think I think the I think that this week is kind of kind of the week for it, for it to come together. Uh, unfortunately, we got the guidance for how self-employed individuals apply for the program. What Jeremy about forty-eight hours before it ran out of money, something like that, and about three days after, three or four days after the program opened for self-employed individuals. But I guess that's neither here nor there either, right? Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it seemed like 
that they were, it was modifying and changing kind of as it went. And there toward the end, they were allowing uh, people to have it who are self-employed and perhaps only took draws from their company and uh, in, uh, in addition to the payroll uh, salary people or, or whatever, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and that's where the complexity came in because it was, it was easy to understand that they wanted self-employed individuals to take advantage of this. It was less clear as to what the mechanism was to do that. If you have a, you know, a standard operating business where you're paying wages, it was easy to determine how those, how those loans would be made. It's generally based upon historic monthly levels of payroll and, and two and a half times that is what the loans were set up, but it was a lot less clear as to what it would be for self-employed. So the, the regular, what I would call the regular program opened up on the third, the self-employed opened up on the 10th, which was also a Friday. And then it was into that following week when we finally got guidance. And so, right, it, it's, as it relates to self-employed individuals, it's think of it as an income replacement and so what they decided to tie that loan to, both the loan and the forgiveness, was 2019 self-employment income, as you would have reported on a Schedule C, you know, on your 2019 tax return. But regardless of whether you actually filed a tax return for 19, that was the calculation that they wanted to see, which poses some issues and, and some problems because, you know, for some of the individuals that would have liked to have, have accessed the program, forgetting the fact that they got this guidance so late, they may not have been able to get applications in before the money ran out. They may not have had self-employment income off of a Schedule C in 2019. And so, maybe you know, maybe that was driven by non-cash expenses like depreciation. It doesn't seem to matter. You know, it, it, without self-employed, self-employment income on a 2019 Schedule C, they may be, they may not have, it just may really shut them out effectively because there's nothing with which to, to uh, calculate a loan based on if they don't have employees. Now, if they have employees, that's fine. They can still, uh, they can still calculate the loan as you normally would. But if they were looking at, at, um, at applying as a self-employed individual without employees and they didn't have that self-employment income, based on the guidance we have now, um, that would that would bar them from being able to take out one of these PPP loans. I mean, but we, we do know more than we did. We, if there is a second round, we're going to have better guidance than we did on the first round, right? That's exactly right, Tony. I, I, better, better is a relative uh, statement. So we, we will definitely have better insight than we have had uh, previously. Uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions, especially as it relates to forgiveness um, and the mechanics of those calculations and how it's actually going, how the math's going to work. Um, but, you know, we, we don't want people to lose sight of uh, the forest through all the trees. So um, the general confines for most business owners are if you qualify, apply. And um, right now, banks are not taking applications, um, but there's kind of a, they can't force applications through to SBA, but there's kind of a queuing up process that some of them are doing in anticipation of additional loans, um, additional funding becoming available. And then for, for companies who have taken advantage of it, um, you know, some of the uncertainties over the, the exact math of how we calculate the amount of the forgiveness, but um, 
and we can get into the specific categories in a moment perhaps, but the basic message is spend the money on the right things that make good sense from a business decision perspective. Um, and that will optimize, um, that will optimize the forgiveness piece. And then we can, we can figure out the exact math of how much was forgiven and how much wasn't forgiven. Um, later but that but that doesn't change the kind of the decision points now of of trying to spend the money um as, as much of the money as you can on on things related to payroll rent mortgage interest um that that congress identified for this for these funds to be to be allocated toward well let's talk about that uh, so let's say that the award has been received by a business you're one of the people who got in on the initial round and uh, your advice is to maximize the forgiveness on it. How do you do that? What, what's the expense categories that you need to focus on besides payroll? In, in addition to payroll, um, and I, I would just at this point too, like to return the mark was very nice about a white paper. He, has a, he mentioned that I had helped draft. He has one on our website as well that I would recommend um, that touches on this issue, again, available for free. And that it, it touches on the issue, both what we know and, and what we don't know, which it seems like the further you get into these, the more you realize you don't know. Um, but generally speaking, payroll costs are good. And that's what they expect. The expectation is, is that at least 75% of the total cost, of the total good cost, and that's kind of how we refer to that, um, anything that would be, that would give rise to loan forgiveness, we're going to refer to as a good cost. Um, at least 75% of that's going to be payroll costs. So that's gross payroll um, benefits, you know, health, health uh, uh, benefits that you provide on behalf of your employees or retirement benefits. That'll be the biggest piece of it. In addition to that, um, amounts paid for mortgage interest, and, and they have clarified that that includes mortgage interest on real property, which is, I think, typically how we think of the term mortgage interest, but also interest on loans associated with personal property used in the business. So that type of interest is good. Uh, rent, any rent payments, again, that is both on real property and personal property used in the business. Uh, utilities cost. Uh, and then those are, and you can also use them on other non-mortgage interest on other business loans, but those typically don't, don't provide forgiveness associated with them. So salaries, you know, or payroll cost, mortgage interest, rent, and utilities. And th those are amounts that you pay or, you know, there's some discussion about paid and incurred, but let's assume amounts paid over the eight-week period after the loan is funded. Yeah, Jeremy, I think that sets it up nicely. And then, um, you know, in terms of tracking that, for some, for some businesses that have, um, you know, good accounting system in place, there's maybe not a need to segregate the funds for for smaller businesses, maybe with a less sophisticated accounting system, or some banks certainly are recommending this, we're seeing some uh, businesses actually segregate the loan proceed funds, put them in a separate account, and only release them from that account when they have identified good costs. Um, but you know, our general advice to, to business owners is um, if you want a cost if, to qualify for forgiveness, so you, you know, payroll's coming up and you want it to qualify for forgiveness. You're going to pay that within the eight week period after your loan gets funded. And we know for certain that if the 
payroll relates to services provided during that eight week window, it'll be treated as a good cost. One of the questions that we don't know the answer to that Jeremy alluded to a minute ago about this paid versus incurred business is whether if, for example, I closed on my loan today, Tony, and tomorrow is my natural payroll loan. So the cash leaves my bank account tomorrow to, for payroll. But that payroll related to services that were rendered for my business prior to closing on the loan we're uncertain how treasury and SBA are, are going to view those costs. Now, from a business owner's perspective, pay them. <laughs> the, the worst thing that happens is, is some of the costs don't count. So then if we think about the other end of our eight week period, um, for certain businesses, depending on the timing of additional guidance, we might find ourselves into in a position on the back end where we're advising clients to go ahead and do a special payroll run. So to the extent my payroll run that's scheduled for tomorrow um, gets kicked out and I only get account um, payments that were for services provided during this eight week period and paid during this eight week period, then my pay payroll tomorrow will largely uh, or entirely get kicked out. But by doing a special payroll run at the end of the eight week period, then, then I'll make sure that I get all of the payroll incurred for this eight-week period actually paid within the eight-week period and, and reduce my risk there. Again, all, that line of thinking is predicated on us not receiving additional guidance. We're hopeful that we will receive additional guidance, but um, you know, Treasury and SBA have been working furiously to try to stay in this program up on real short time horizons. Um, and so it will likely be a rushed affair uh, at the end. So we're, we're trying to get clients kind of ready for this idea of, well, let's look at things that might be incurred during this eight week period that would account as that would count as good costs and figure out how to get them actually paid within that eight week period to decrease the risk of, of SBA and treasury doing something wonky in terms of its uh, the math that they prescribe for how to actually cap calculate what your good costs are during that eight week measurement period. Again, it starts the starts right after you get the funds and extends from eight weeks eight weeks thereafter. Well, you know, I'm 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 not very smart, but I'm smart enough to know I don't need to be doing my own financial recording. So um, Jamie does that for us, and she attended a webinar you guys did not too long ago, so she was able to glean a lot of good information from that. But for those who are listening, how do they, how, how do you put these into your financial statements and, and such? It's a great question. Jeremy, you want to take this, take a stab at, at the uh, accounting part of that? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and yeah, and, and I think we might want to go back on the forgiveness just uh, one second too, but let's on the financial statement side, what I've been telling, what I've been telling clients of mine is, book it as a loan. That is what it is at the beginning. Re some people are, are handling it in different ways um, as far as, you know, relieving that liability as they pay what we call good costs that are subject to forgiveness. I think I would go ahead and book this as a liability, book it as you would any given loan. And then at the end of the eight week period, once we get some clarity as to what is forgiven and get, a and get approval on, on what's forgiven, I would reduce that loan 
to the extent of forgiveness, book income associated with it on the financial statements. I would classify that in a separate way. Um, book income associated with it, reduce the liability. Any amount that's unforgiven would still be a loan. Anything that's not runs through as some other income item. Debt forgiveness is really what it would be. Um, one thing to mention associated with that, you know, we're talking financial statement purposes here. Um, the the income associated with any forgiveness like that, generally speaking, you know, you have a cancellation of debt item that is a that is a taxable event. There is a provision in this law that says that any income associated with cancellation of debt on one of these PPP loans is not taxable income. We have received some questions about whether or not the expenses associated with those um, with those payments are still deductible in the same way. I think our position is until we, we, we receive guidance that says otherwise is that those expenses would be uh, those expenses would be deductible. So that's why as you pay these expenses, I wouldn't, you know, I would actually book the expense, you know, show a reduction in cash. I wouldn't maybe offset the, the loan amount with what would otherwise be expenses so that you don't see those on the financial statements. I think I would still keep all of that detail associated with all the expenses that are being paid with it. And those we believe should be deductible. You know, I think if they had meant them not to be deductible, I'm not sure why they would have gone, they being treasury, would have gone to the trouble of specifying that the cancellation of debt income is not taxable income. Now, there, again, there are some people that still think this is an open item. I think we wait and see if we get new guidance, but barring any new guidance, I think that's the position where we've landed. So loan on the books, any amount forgiven is, is income that I would track separately for financial statement purposes, not taxable income. And until we receive other guidance, any deductions or any, any expenses paid with these funds are still deductible. I was just going to add on to that, you know, the risk of somebody burying the forgiveness piece in, you know, some sort of income account that has several things in it is if there's not good communication between them and their tax preparer at the end of the year, it would be real easy for someone to just take that as other income and not, not be aware that it's tax exempt income. So that, that's one of the reasons why putting it on a separate line item on your financial statements as an unusual item is a, is a good idea and calling special attention to it um, as, as a tax exempt income item will make sure that um, there's not a miscommunication when it comes tax time um, and, and make sure that a, a business owner isn't paying tax on what, is, what shouldn't be taxable income. Jeremy, did you have another point you wanted to make on the forgiveness piece? Yeah, and, and we don't, we, this is a, a part where we could get into the weeds pretty quickly, so we'll do our best not to. And again, I think this is where that white paper that Mark drafted, I think, is, is really good in, in, uh, in, in framing this discussion. So, you know, the, the biggest concern that we have with our clients right now, as Mark rightly said, is what is it that the business is going to pay either during that eight week period or before it right, you know, immediately before or immediately after let's at least give ourselves the option of getting forgiveness by paying as many good costs as we can uh, that, that we would otherwise pay, make sure those are paid within the eight week period. So that's, that's sort of the first threshold. Did you spend all of the money on all it, on good cost? And let's assume we've done that. Things can never quite always can quite be this as simple as they maybe otherwise should be when it comes to provisions like this. So not only do you have to spend the, the money on the right cost, 
but they want you to still continue to employ the right number of people and pay the right amount to each individual. So as it relates to loan forgiveness, first hurdle is you, you spend all of the money and you spend them on the right things during the eight weeks. There is then going to be a, a proration of the forgiveness depending upon what your employment level looks like during that eight week period versus what your level of employment was during a baseline. And if your level of employment is, if you are employing fewer people during that eight week period, there will be a pro rata reduction in the forgiveness based upon the level of employment and to the extent that has been reduced. In addition to that, let's say you maintain full employment, but you do so by paying everybody 50% of the wages or salary they otherwise made. If you reduce any individual employees pay more than 25% when compared to the prior uh, full quarter before you get the loan proceeds, there will also be a, a reduction in the amount of forgiveness based upon that reduction in pay. So that's where a lot of the complexity is going to come in. It's tracking the right cost. And then even if we do that, what is the employment level during that eight weeks versus what it was in the baseline? What, what is the amount that we paid each employee during that eight weeks versus what we paid them the first full quarter preceding the receipt of the funds? And to make things even more complicated, let's say we flunk one of those tests, we do have the ability to make it up by June 30th. So if you restore uh, wages and restore employment by June 30th, it appears that that makes up for this deficiency and you're not hurt by that previous reduction in employment or reduction in wages. This is where we're really going to need more guidance. And if, if you know, Mark, if there's anything you can add to that, but I think it's, it's, that's where we're going to get a lot of questions because it, it's a, in one way, it's a test during the eight-week period, and if you flunk it, then you appear to be looking at a point in time. And so there's a lot of complexity, but I think I wouldn't get too lost in that detail right now other than do the best you can to do exactly what Mark said, is pay all of those expenses that you can within that eight weeks, and then we'll try to, to determine you know, what employment needs to happen you know, or do we need to restore anyone's wages if it makes sense to do so in order to get loan forgiveness. Yeah, and Jeremy, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head. And for business owners out there, the, you know, the, the red flags are, uh, we, it feels like we used to have 12 people and now we, it feels like we have eight people. Okay, well, you're probably gonna have to get back to 12 people if you're, if you're fishing for full forgiveness. Um, it, it feels like we used to pay people you know, $75,000 a year and, and we gave everybody a 20% pay cut you know, then, then that's the type of thing that, that I think we prepare for restoration on. Um, you know, the, the questions, as Jeremy mentioned, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions in this area of exactly how the math's going to work. So for people out there, if your banker, your accountant, your internal bookkeeper gives you the, I don't know answer, uh, that's okay. And that's probably the right answer. Um, you know, somebody gets a $75,000 PPP loan that closed last week. And, and, and they're, they, want, they say, okay, great. What do we need to spend it on? We're going to spend it on the good cost within the eight week period. Um, well, is that going to get me full forgiveness? The, the answer right now is I don't know, but the, the relevant question is, is what do I need to do to, to get, be in the best position for loan forgiveness? And that's, that's to continue to spend the money that makes good business sense to spend 
um, on, on, those, on those good costs. So one of the questions we've gotten a lot of is, you know, my, my staff is furloughed and they're claiming unemployment right now. Um, do I recall them and pay them with PPP proceeds? Um, and I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of moral or philosophical uh, approaches that somebody could take to that question, but from a pure dollars and cents perspective, if you pull people off of unemployment right now and pay them with the PPP proceeds, you're, you're, if they were, if they were getting at least what you're paying them as a wage, if they were getting at least that through the enhanced unemployment benefit, you're, you're substituting unemployment dollars for wage dollars. And uh, at the end of the day, you're going to have less loan that you have to pay back to the government. From the, but from the business's perspective, you're out the cash either way. And by paying it out as wages, you're, you're going to be triggering some payroll taxes in addition to that. So, you know, it, 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 there's not a pure economic incentive to hire back idle employees, employees that, that just by the nature of their jobs can't contribute in this COVID shutdown environment. Um, but hopefully here in, in, in the coming weeks, we'll have people who, who got loan proceeds that, that can open their doors, can get people back, back to work. And, and at that point in time, um, the more, the more uh, productivity, the more, more dollars you can spend on payroll at that point forward, uh, the better. As is typical in most situations, every business owner has to look at their own situation and apply the guidance that we have, right? Absolutely. I think, I think that's it. Yep. Um, well, I know there's a, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens of conversations, both with my clients and with other people. There's a lot of online gatherings that are taking place now um, because everybody's you know, working from home or they're using online tools a lot, a lot more. And so there's a lot of questions out there like looking for ideas, ideas to help cash flow, ideas to help, you know, preserve the business. What other tools uh, are out there that you guys could maybe um, point people to that would help in business cash flow? Sure. And, and I'll take a, a first stab and then we can, there's, there's plenty of these, but let's, I, I guess let's start with some of the, the, you know, Mark had mentioned at the beginning, the Families First Act and then this CARES Act. So some of the additional provisions in these, um, in addition to just some general business guidelines and best practices, uh, you know, if you have employees that are, that are out, you know, say you're still in business, you have employees that are out due to COVID related reasons you know, probably the one we're seeing most frequently is uh, kids' school or daycare is closed. Um, parent has to stay home because of that, is unable to work, is unable to telework. Um, employers are now required to provide up to two weeks of sick leave associated with various COVID reasons. And then for that particular reason related to kids, there's paid FMLA associated with that that is required to be paid. The flip side of that, though, is that that is being funded via payroll tax credit. So again, if, if you are already providing sick leave for your employees for, these, for this reason, for example, or for COVID-related reasons, there is a payroll tax credit associated with you for up to two weeks of sick leave associated with that. And then in that case, only of the case of the child being home um, because their school or daycare is closed, which is basically every school or daycare at this point, um, there is another 10 weeks of tax credits available, payroll tax credits available for providing 
pay up to a certain level of their um, of their previous normal wages. So that's something I think I you know to keep in mind is is you're providing benefits to employees or maybe tax credits associated with that. In addition, there's uh, various ways of deferring taxes, uh, employer payroll taxes, particularly as it relates to Social Security. There is a deferral that has been provided. So from the from the date of the bill all the way up through the end of the year, um, you can defer payment. Again, it's not a credit. You're eventually going to have to pay it. But while times are tough and cash flow may be tighter, there is a way to defer that payment of employer payroll taxes to the government that would otherwise be due in 2020. Half of that would be due in 2021. The remaining half of that would be due in 2022. The only thing I would caution on this is this is one of those items that does not work in conjunction with the PPP. You can do this if you have a PPP loan only up until the time that you receive a, a decision on forgiveness. So as soon as your business receives any loan forgiveness associated with the PPP, this deferral no longer applies. But it may provide you, at least in the short term, in addition to the PPP funds, um, it may provide a mechanism to hold on to some cash now and pay it in the future, hopefully when the cash flow situation has changed. Uh, Jeremy has highlighted a couple of really neat new tools and uh, are good things for business owners to keep in mind. But we also want business owners to uh, have visibility into what they expect their cash flow to be going forward. So we, we're encouraging a lot of business owners to put together a three or four month forward looking cash flow model. Um, you know, these can be of varying sophistication, but think of it kind of like a household budget, um, you know, there's, there's mortgage and there's food and there's all these things that, that you know you're going to need to spend money on over the coming months. Some of them are variable and some of them are fixed. Um, and then trying to predict the revenue side is, is a challenge right now, but we think that putting together some kind of expected case, best case, worst case scenario type, uh, type models helps business owners to, to make to make better decisions. Um, so if, if the business owner can have visibility into, well, we're totally shut down, we're gonna have no revenue coming in and these are the expenses, then, then we can make some decisions on that, see what's coming in with the PPP loan, um, and then start looking at ways to de delay payment of cash. Um, and one of the things that, that the banks have been really friendly on is that none of the banks and, and the Fed certainly is, is driving this, none of them want to see businesses fail because the government said, hey, you need to shut down for a short period of time. And I know we're all hoping that it's short and time will tell what short really looks like. Um, but, you know, the idea is that that shouldn't be the thing that puts businesses out of business. So, um, so the Fed has encouraged community banks and, and other lenders to, to really work with borrowers during these unprecedented times. So we're seeing a lot of clients that are able to go to the bank even before cash is in a pinch and say, hey, why don't we take our, um, why, why don't we take our loans interest only for, for the summer? And, and that way we're, we're delaying repayment of some principal on some loans, preserving that cash. Because even if we sit here today and, and we do our modeling and we say, you know, we should be fine at the end of July, we shouldn't have any checks bounce, um, you know, building in some level of certainty 
uh, I think is helpful. And, and when you ask that question in advance, you can, you can get permission and it can be yes. Um, versus when, when you, when you go in, in an emergency at the end, then it causes a lot of stress for everybody. So, um, so I think those are a couple of things that are really unrelated to the legislation we've, we've gotten, but are, are kind of best practice for, for what business owners, uh, a couple of tools in their tool belt to help them manage, manage the impact of, of these COVID related shutdowns and slowdowns. You guys have provided a lot of great uh, guidance and information today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Is there any question I didn't ask you that I should have asked about this? No, I think we hit most of the, I think we hit the, the big ticket, you know, items. And I think just to, to echo what Mark said there at the end, I mean, I think we've got some of this is, you know, it's, it's the new things, you know, I hate to use the word sexy, but you know, some of the, some of the new provisions, you know, the, the PPP you're hearing a lot about, but the, the best, pra best practices are best practices because they are, uh, you know, and so the items that Mark mentioned, you know, even though we have these, these, you know, PPPs, which may or may not continue to be funded, you know, looking at cash flow, doing a budget, those are the things that will help out long term, even if they're not getting the press um, that some of these other items are, or being proactive, talking to your banks, those you have lending relationships with, uh, that'll be key to, to managing this situation, in addition to some of these other items that we have available, maybe on a temporary basis. Well, you guys mentioned that you got a lot of resources and tools available on your website. We'll put all that in the show notes uh, so everybody can take advantage of that. And uh, I really appreciate you guys being on. Mark Gingrich and Jeremy Morris of Williams Keepers Accounting Consultants. And um, I appreciate all you guys' hard work trying to do your best to clarify and simplify this for your clients and also making that stuff available for everybody else. I really appreciate that. We're happy to help. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Well, listen, you guys uh, take care and stay safe. My best to you and your families, and I hope I get to see you soon. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you. All right. Uh, Jeremy Morris and Mark Gingrich from Williams Keepers Accounting Consultants. I will have more on Better Than Before right after this. Friends, in these unprecedented times, your University Subaru family hopes that you and yours are secure and safe. We're open and working within the parameters of the stay-at-home order. Service and parts are open as usual, and the sales department is open via email and internet. We can discuss features, options, and pricing, and even come to agreements over the phone or internet. Visit our website, click internet pricing, or give us a call. And right now, get 0% APR financing for 63 months on most 2020 new Subaru vehicles. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com.
You know, as things have really shifted in the last 30 days or so in people's personal lives, but also in business, it has really caused people to self-reflect on how well they deal with change. I mean, we've had a lot of change to deal with uh, in the last couple of weeks here, especially with the stay-at-home orders, uh, working with less people at your job, working remotely from your home, everything from how much, how many supplies do I need in my home to, you know, function that I'm going to be here more than I normally would. Normally I eat lunch maybe out or, or maybe I'm eat my lunch at work. Now I'm going to have all my meals at home. There's just a lot of change uh, that several uh, million people in the United States have had to shift on with this new paradigm of the coronavirus. And so I was thinking, what are the things that we need to look at as far as being change ready? And how well are you prepared and ready for change to happen? Because one thing is for certain, things will never continue as they have been. There will always be a shift. There will always be a change. Sometimes it's change that you decide to make. And then on the others, it's forced change. And on a lot of this coronavirus situation, we've had to deal with forced change. Uh, the stay-at-home orders, the flatten-the-curve philosophy, and all the things that people are trying to do to minimize this crisis as much as possible. And it gives you a sense of how you would react, how you would behave, how you would function when a crisis hits you, either in your business or in your personal life. And when it comes down to it, I really think there are three things that you need to keep in mind as far as being change ready. The first one is how well you embrace change how well you accept and adapt to it instead of fighting it. Yes, I know there's a lot of complaining going on about the situation we're going through now. Uh, if you are on Facebook or Twitter or any social media platform, you know that in your news feed or among your peers or friends or followers, whatever term you want to use to describe them, you know that there's a lot of fighting or dissent about the policies and about the things that are going on and the decisions that have been made. And it's really just a reflection of what happens anytime you are in a situation where someone has to make a decision or a situation has to change and you may or may not be ready for it. The thing is, is most of the time when you fight change, you lose. It's just a simple fact. You lose. And I've seen a few situations that have gotten really nasty because people didn't want to change. And so they turned political. And when I say political, I mean inside an organization. I don't mean in the elected sense. I mean in the organizational sense. They turned corporate political and they would amass conversations and power in order to make things the way they want them instead of embracing the change. That doesn't work most of the time, but I have seen a couple of situations where it's worked massively and very destructively. So you ask yourself, why do people fight change? Most of the time it's selfish. It's selfish behavior. It's 
What is this doing to me? I don't like this. I want things to be a different way, or I want things to be the way they used to be. I don't want things to be the way they're going to be. So through my selfishness, I'm going to fight this. And I'm worried about how this change is going to affect me. And I'm not worried about anybody else. And especially in a corporate or organizational situation, because the change may be necessary for, not necessarily for you, but it may be necessary to preserve the company for future employees, future generations, things that are coming up down the line that a lot of times people who won't embrace change are not thinking about. They're not thinking about other employees, other managers. They're really not taking the customer's best interests at heart. And they're surely not thinking about people who are going to come into the company after them. They're just thinking about their little part of the world and they get selfish and they don't want to embrace change. And I've seen organizations where they have revered the culture so much that they became change resistant. You can do two things with culture from that standpoint. You can revere it or you can respect it. When you revere a company's history, it becomes so fragile. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to change anything. You don't want to adjust anything. You don't want to update anything. You don't want to modernize anything. You want to put it in this box and put it in a glass case where nobody can get to it. And you, you become the guard over that culture to the extent that you fight off anything that anybody tries to improve it or innovate around it or anything like that. And you're in total reverence to it. On the other hand, if you respect the culture, you have, you hold it in high regard so much. So you want to see it preserved and you want to see it succeed. You don't want it to become irrelevant. You want it to stay relevant to today's marketplace. And you make changes to it that will move it forward into its next iteration of the company. And you don't revere it to the point where you're just scared to death that somebody's going to change anything to it at all. But you respect it so much, you want to see it last. And we want to see it endure. So there's a really big difference there between revering a history and respecting a history. And so if you fight change, there's going to be loss, right? It's going to be a loss on someone's part. There's always losers when people fight change. And it will most likely be you. If you get yourself politically connected and strong in such a way to a powerful person, then maybe it won't be you this time but you will eventually lose as things will eventually have to change. But it will definitely be those who come after you that are going to suffer if you're not the one that's moving the company forward. And um, people who are highly successful, the people that I've been around, and I've been around a lot of successful people, people who are highly successful get ahead of the change curve, they anticipate the changes, they plan for the changes, and then they're ready for it when the time comes to embrace it. The second thing is promote change. And this is always gonna show up in your attitude and the attitude of those that you are leading.
Your attitude shows up in your words and actions, and the attitudes of those you lead shows up in their words and actions also. And you can tell when people get it because they start talking and behaving like you. Now, if they're talking and behaving like you and they're not embracing change, then you're not doing a very good job. You're fighting change and you're pushing your own agenda, right? But if you're promoting change, you're not fighting it. You're not resisting it. You're the person's asking yourself, how am I going to positively promote this change in a healthy way and lead the attitudes and the actions of others that are in my circle of influence so that we can all be supportive of it and this thing can go smoothly and everybody will be better because of it because we get on the page. And then the third thing you can do is you can lead change. You can get out in front of it. You can be a leader of it. You won't be dragging around. You won't be slowing stuff down. You won't be a stumbling block. You won't be having sidebars with other people casting doubt into their thinking. You won't be telling others how it should be done and not doing it yourself. You won't be throwing wrenches into the plan just to slow things down. You're going to be a person, if you're leading change, you're going to be a person that removes the wrenches. You're going to be a person who greases the gears. You're going to be a person that removes the obstacles. You're going to be clearing the way for people to facilitate the change as smoothly as possible. Everybody, when there's a change, you know, especially let's, let's take the example of losing a loved one. Well, there's a grieving period. You know, there's a period by which you're adjusting to life without that person. Happens in organizations also. When you make a change, you make a modification, you make a shift, there's gonna be some grace period in there where people are just kind of getting used to the idea. And there's ample time for that, but you need to make sure you don't stay there. You don't stay in a grieving period over the change. You need to take the time to process it, take your time to grieve, take your time of remorse or whatever. But there's got to be a time when you pick up all your, the pieces and move on. So again, those three components of being change ready are embrace change, promote change, and lead change. And that's how you get prepared and ready for big changes. That's our show today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and also at ClearVisionDEV. You come over and join my Facebook group, We've got over a thousand members of the Facebook group now called Tony Richards Speaker, Author, Coach, and it's growing, you know, 15, 20 members a week. We'd love to have you come on and join. All you have to do is find that Facebook page, Tony Richards Speaker, Author, Coach, and you could just hit the like button and you're in. We've got a very quick and hassle-free qualification and approval process. Just hit the like button and you'll be in. We are thinking about you and praying about you every single day as we go through this 
coronavirus thing together and we're on the downhill side of it. I really do believe that. Uh, I am hoping for and praying for warmer weather all the time. Warmer weather will burn this virus to a crisp and we can all get on with the next phase of our lives and the next phase of our businesses and we can get back to doing what we need to be doing, right? On behalf of our associate producer, Whitney Coker, and chief producer, William Foster, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you to take precautions, stay safe, and everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.